This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. David Pack, a board-certified internal medicine physician with over 25 years of experience in direct patient care. He's a physician entrepreneur. He's someone that I personally have worked with when I was in industry overseeing capital investments for a population health MSO. I collaborated with him uh, to build an ACO to create a, a leading edge practice. And that's exactly what he does in New Bronzeville, Texas, which is the second fastest growing community in the country. You know, he created a PAC medical group, which is a patient centered, holistic, relationship based, tech enabled model that is focused focused on senior lives. He's had outstanding results. He's uh, built an ACO called Zenith Independent Physician Network, which is a network of independent primary care physicians. He's also an entrepreneur that realizes that the limiting factor to scaling population health is with staffing. And uh, he created a, a staffing company called Elios, which uses human AI to work with practices to address a lot of the transactional and administrative needs that can ultimately create improvement and deploying CCM and remote patient monitoring and other value-based care strategies. And it takes over some of the administrative functions and, and ultimately helps the practice with risk adjustment and having a better MLR. I can go on and on, but, you know, most importantly, you know, I just think David's a stand-up guy. I, he's someone that I wanted to have on the podcast just because he's so focused on the patient. He's uh, someone that that I really believe has the, the the right spirit, you know, to get into medicine and and do the right thing and really lead with altruism and a patient first mentality. So I'm happy to have him on and share his story. And without further ado, let me go ahead and hand it over to Dr. David Pack. And if you like this episode and please check out our other ones, subscribe to our newsletter. And we appreciate a review and a five-star on Apple Podcasts that helps us continue to tell these important stories and value-based care. Dr. David Peck, welcome to the Race to Value. It's awesome to have you on the podcast this week. I'm extremely honored. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to start this conversation, Eric, as, as you know that you and I have had many robust conversations about healthcare, so I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, it's a pleasure. David, there's so many times we've had those conversations in the past that I wish I could hit the record button, so now this is a dream come true. But, you know, I thought as we start our conversation today, 
we could start with your leadership journey and value-based primary care. You've been a practicing physician for 25 years. In 2000, you founded the Allied Institute of Medicine, a medical practice on the south side of San Antonio. It started as a traditional fee-for-service practice, but you had this vision for value and transitioned it to a holistic relationship-based senior-focused risk model. And you had immense success growing the practice to include 24 clinicians along with seven outpatient clinics and a wellness and transitional care center. And you had a successful exit in 2012, selling the practice to Humana. And you know, never want to rest on your laurels. You came back to Texas in full force after a few years of semi-retirement in, in Hawaii and founded the PAC Medical Group, PMG, in 2018 after your non-compete expired and originally founded in New Braunfels, Texas, which for our listeners out there, that's the third fastest growing city in the U.S. located just north of San Antonio. And your practice, PMG, has now since expanded into five other Texas cities. It has 31 providers and primary care, endo, neuro, podiatry, derm, behavioral health, rheumatology. You have an extensivist hospital group that manages all your patients and a closed ecosystem of continuity of care. And then with PAC Medical Group serving as the flagship practice, you also formed a risk-bearing entity called Zenith Independent Physician Network. And that has 91 practices and 170 physicians in 23 cities. So it's just uh, amazing to kind of see, you know, how you're going about putting together this network and this ecosystem and this care delivery model for value transformation. You know, David, could you walk our listeners through your entrepreneurial background and creating value-based innovative care delivery models for seniors? And what do you see as the key success factor to creating a full risk medical practice and RBE that can scale across communities with consistent outcomes. Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful intro. It's been a long 25 years, but it, uh, at the same time, it went by really, really quick. I think for me, I really do believe everything happens for a reason. And when I look back, I think some of the times where I felt like I was really struggling, those were the times that I think I learned the most. It's very interesting throughout that whole career because I actually started down on the south side of San Antonio in 1997 as a small internal medicine practice. And then basically I ventured off on my own and found that, like you said, an allied institute of medicine. I think I come from a different perspective because I was actually a healthcare executive. I was an executive at Humana for a little while. And then of course I was an entrepreneur. I, I, I saw patients every single day throughout my entire career, pretty much. And so I, I see myself, if, if someone asks me, what are you first and, and for always and forever, for me, I'll always be a, a physician first. And then after that, all the other experiences come through. I'm really excited about where healthcare is going because I think you and I talked about it in many times that, that the current healthcare system, uh, which is vastly majority of it is fee-for-service. And I think the data clearly proves that fee-for-service is a broken model. It really does reward bad behavior that's not conducive to good outcomes. Uh, so it rewards volume and procedures. And I think it clearly shows that that doesn't tie into uh, health outcomes. And so I am really excited about this huge momentum that's going into what you want to call it a full risk, risk-bearing entity, alternative payment model. There's so many different names, right? Value-based. But Ultimately, what we want to do is treat the patient, not the visit. And to me, that's the difference. In a fee-for-service model, you're basically focused on the visit 
and then there's no accountability. And what I mean by that is like, if you have a patient, for example, that comes in and you're managing the visit, and a lot of times you're, you know, they come in for one single ailment. And so you don't really take care of the patient holistically because they're unfortunately in a fee-for-service model. Every time you click, that's how you generate income. And it doesn't work because there's no really accountability from a financial perspective of if that patient ends up in the emergency room following your visit or end up being in the hospital for two or three days, what could have been avoidable, that really doesn't come out of your bottom line. And unfortunately, that really does drive behavior. I think the studies have clearly shown that uh, reimbursement models drive clinical behavior. And I know we all say that, you know, we, we take a hypocritical oath and we want to do best for our patients. And I think majority of clinicians want to do that. But at the same time, we have to keep the lights up. We have to pay our staff. And so that kind of goes into it. So ultimately, I'm really excited about what's going to happen, especially with Medicare mandating some kind of, of arrangement and alternative payment model arrangement by 2025. And I think that's a really good thing because I, at some point, Everyone in the healthcare ecosystem needs to be accountable for their behavior. Well, David, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you have this mandate that seemingly is underway, you know, 2025, 2030. I mean, it's anyone's best guess, but clearly the directionality of the, the federal government is moving in the direction of having all Medicare beneficiaries into shared savings, risk-based payment models uh, within the MSSP. Now you have this new ACO REACH program as well which uses a lot of the same levers as Medicare Advantage. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about Medicare Advantage in and of itself. I mean, this is a program that, you know, in the industry, we've seen tremendous growth over the last few years. We have about 22 million people, about a third of all beneficiaries in Medicare that are in Advantage plans. And in the next few years, it's going to be 50% of Medicare patients. I mean, the, there's a explosive enrollment growth trajectory that's coupled with the silver tsunami of the aging baby boomer population. MA is certainly an attractive business to get into if you're a primary care physician. If you can do it well, it's a remarkable opportunity to have an impact in population health with rewarding economics. And as a physician-led risk-bearing entity, it seems to me that once you pay the compliance investment and the regulated infrastructure that you need to operate the program, it can be quite lucrative to be an MA risk. And the patients are pretty sticky. I mean, MA plans seem to be an area where you can have consumer-centric innovation and health plans can offer uh, members greater flexibility. You can have more inventive care models and increased emphasis on economic value and unique benefit options, all while being more affordable than traditional fee-for-service coverage. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you think about Medicare Advantage becoming a prominent payment vehicle for primary care and managing the outcomes for senior populations in the years to come? That's a great question. I think in my mind, Medicare advantages and really sophisticated MA models is the original value-based model, right? If you look at the model, one thing I learned is if you want to learn MA, you need to go to Florida. <laughs> when I, I learned so much when I did my um, visits down to Miami-Dade in, in South Florida. They created so many interesting programs that really engage the, the Medicare population, right? They had, we talk about social determinants of health, SCOH. If you look at some of the more advanced models down there, it's pretty amazing. They have you know, senior social centers that causes, you know, they really host a lot of our social activities. They have transportation. They have lots of social workers. 
And so I, I encourage anyone who really wants to look at what MA plan and at full scale, how it can uh, really impact our community, I would encourage everyone to go down to Florida. So MA is the original value-based model. I think um, the skill sets are very, very similar. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is do three things. Number one is identify the, the vulnerable population. And then you have to code them correctly so that, you know, obviously it makes sense that the sicker the patient, it takes more money to manage that patient, right? And that's the way I was telling my clinicians is that, don't you think your patient deserve the best? And, and by actually taking the time to uh, correctly, specifically given the right uh, HCC codes, that really does help bring in more money in the, in the front end so you, you have more resources to take care of the patients. That's really important. Then, of course, you have to deliver the right care model for the right patient population, right? I mean, so there's many different levels in the aging population. There's 65-year-olds or 75-year-olds that they can run marathons and there are no medications and they're extremely independent versus somebody who's 70 year old is on dialysis and has got congestive heart failure and has tremendous mobility issues. Well, I, I think it doesn't take a genius to figure out that you have to have a totally different care model for you know, that patient on dialysis versus the person who's running marathons. And so if you look at some of the advanced care models, I think MA is the place that you can start learning from tremendously. So in my mind, MA has been a, a wonderful template that we can work off of as, as we have this huge momentum going towards value base. Well, David, and considering the transformation opportunity of massively powerful primary care within a value-based purchasing construct like Medicare Advantage or the Medicare ACO program, I know you also are a firm believer that if you're going to reach the fullest potential of healing, it can only be realized through physician autonomy and independence. I mean, in the paradigm of fee-for-service right now, which currently dominates our industry, independent primary care physicians are extremely cash-strapped. They're struggling to remain financially solvent. They're on a hamster wheel in the current model. I mean, they're having to run faster and faster by cranking through more and more transactional E&M visits just to generate enough revenue to keep the lights on. And as the hassles of have gotten worse. Many PCPs are jumping ship and selling their practices to larger enterprises like hospitals or large corporate entities and PE-backed physician aggregators. And consequently, there's data from the AMA now that shows that only 32% of primary care physicians work in a private practice outside of a corporatized care delivery model. And you're a proponent of massively powerful primary care and full risk value-based Medicare programs that is delivered by an independent physician model. All that said, it seems like we have this historical moment right now to preserve physician autonomy and value-based care to reach the fullest potentiality of the quadruple aim through the independent model. And I wanted to ask you why you're concerned about the massive corporate takeover of healthcare and why it impedes physicians' ability to take care of patients. I mean, given that over 75% of primary care revenue is currently fee-for-service, what role can value-based care play in ensuring the continued existence of the independent primary care model? That's a great question. I think um, I'm going to take that piece by piece. And I'm extremely passionate about this topic because I see my fellow primary care uh, physicians who work really, really hard and struggling. I think there's many dynamics that's happening and it's colliding at the same time. I think number one is that 
A lot of the physicians, they're on this hamster wheel. They don't know how to get off of it. And so by intent, Medicare is going to uh, continue to decrease their fee-for-service reimbursement. And it makes sense because they're trying to drive everyone to these uh, alternative payment models, ultimately leading to value-based care, right? Think about it. If you're on the hamster wheel and they're, they're giving you less and less carrots, you have to try to try faster to get more carrots. And unfortunately, I'm seeing that. And so it, it becomes very tiring for them. One of the hardest things to do in, in any uh, healthcare, and you can ask any organization, is trying to change physician behavior. That is an extremely painful process. And I think there's many dynamics why that is, but I'll give you a prime example. If you go to a, a typical primary care physician and say, you know what, I found this amazing value-based contract that you start out at, let's say, $75 PM, PM. You know, the first answer that uh, question I get all the time is, wait a minute, you're talking about capitation? I said, well, we used to call it capitation, especially you got to be really careful with that word capitation, because uh, if you look at the older doctors, right, uh, that went through the first round of capitation, it was a it's, it was a four letter word, right? It just was not a good experience. And so the first question to ask is, wait a minute, so $75, the almost immediate response I get all the time is, well, if I see that patient four times or five times that month, does that mean I only get $75? And I say, yes, that's correct. And, and they're like, well, why would I want to do that? And I said, I, I totally get that. Let me ask you something. I ask them, do you, who does your practice management or who does your revenue cycle management? And I said, let me do me a favor. Go and pull your data from the last two or three years and count the number of lives you have in Medicare and tell me how much money you generate from that. And when you actually do the numbers, they can see. So they don't, they don't realize that the, on an average Medicare patient, you'll see them 3.5 to four times a year, right? And if you look at the generation that you would make, and I actually do the comparison for uh, $75 PM, PM in, and I basically put it side by side with what they're making for the last three years of Medicare fee-for-service. And we do the math. And many times it comes out to like 250 to 350% of Medicare. And they're like, Wow, I had no idea. So I think there's a big educational gap that needs to be closed. And part of that has to be physician leadership. I think well, one of the biggest areas there's a huge gap in the country is great physician leadership. And that can only come through, in my mind, not through corporate takeover. I think it has to be from empowerment and educating the, the, the primary care clinicians, independent primary care clinicians and get them to understand the difference. And a lot of it is just not knowing. And unfortunately, I'm sure you already found this out that many of the primary care physicians, they don't know what they don't know. That's the first thing. And so the first thing I think we need to do is have a programs like yours is extremely helpful. I can't thank you enough for doing this because this is a wonderful platform to anyone who's willing to listen, to understand that it's a really important aspect of educating yourself about the transformation. What does that mean for me? A lot of the docs, they're working so hard, they're on the, you know, they're running on the hamster wheel, then they have to get off and then they have to chart after hours and then they have to go see their kids, uh, you know, ball games on weekends and so forth and so on. They just don't have the time to really dive into what does that mean, the transformation? What does alternative payment model mean? You know, what does risk adjustment factor mean? What does medical loss ratio mean? All these terms that we use 
they really don't take the time to really understand that. I think in my mind, people like you and the programs like you, if we can go out throughout the country and really educate the primary care physicians of the opportunities that falls before them, that how fee-for-service, if you're gonna adapt that model, you're gonna to continue to just be on a hamster wheel. And if you can transition that to a value base you know, and really get paid for what you do, which is really take care of the patient very well, and listen to them and doing all the right things like medication adherence, making sure that you understand socially what's happening in their home, all those things that really contribute to health. I think that's the way, I think for me, that's a better way than corporate takeover healthcare. Well, David, I think you said it well. I mean, there clearly is an educational component and, you know, time and time again, when I talk to various people in industry about value-based care, they always go to the the structure of the payment model and the alignment of financial incentives. And, you know, of course, you know, that's the starting point, but there also needs to be an education around, like, you can deliver care in a more effective, interdisciplinary, team-based way that is holistic and relationship-based and tech-enabled and spans the brick and mortar of the clinic and really reaches the patient where they are in their homes and impacts those social determinants of health and, and can be a better way than than just cranking out RVUs and having transactional relationships and, and really a non-existent relationship when you get down to it at the human level. But the, the next level of recognition, once you get past that level of understanding that there's a need for innovation and there's a better way to do it and there's rewarding economics you know down the way if you can execute then it comes down to how do i access capital you know to build this population health infrastructure and there's many of our listeners out there that are provider organizations and there's a lot of independent physicians that are preparing to take on a capital partner to support their value journey. And, you know, they're they're obviously realizing, okay, well, I know most investors, they want an average annual return of 20% or more. And these PE firms are out there acquiring practices like mine that might be a platform practice that's large and well-managed and reputable, but they may want 60 to 80% ownership. They may want to sell my practice in three to seven years. Physicians are trying to think about you know, how, how do I retain my ownership and, but also share in the growth objectives and, and then have, and be positioned to profit from a resale, but, but also they want to make sure that, that there's good alignment from the approach to value-based care. And they want to make sure that this capital partnership can actually enable them to take on these new payment models. And, and so I'm just thinking, David, with a lot of these investors that are out there for short-term ROI time horizons and PE exits, how would a primary care physician go about vetting the investor landscape that's out there? I mean, for those listeners out there that are in the provider sector, what are the implications of capital investment and value-based care? And what would you advise them in terms of pursuing a PE investment to build that infrastructure to take downside risk and, and go about it the right way and, and choose the right partner? I think there's several things that need to happen. Number one is, again, we're going to go back. You really need to educate yourself about what the transformation looks like and what value base is. So you really need to educate yourself on, on value base. And then number two, the most important thing is you have to have the right contracts, right? If you don't have the right contracts and you don't have access to the right contracts, it doesn't matter at the end of the day of how many lives you have and how well you manage them. Because if you if, if your contracts doesn't allow you to participate in the profitability of you know, managing the patients really well, then it doesn't make sense. You're not gonna make that work. 
And so those are two key components. The other big thing that I think needs to happen that I think clinicians need to be open-minded of being actually, instead of competing with each other, actually aggregate with each other and say, okay, this is what I have in this geographical zone. You have that in this geographical zone. Isn't there a way that we can align and basically create economy of scale? That's where it becomes very difficult because physicians are running around so fast that like just even trying to get in a meeting with physicians, primary care physicians, it's, it's almost an impossible task. You can, you can ask any, any solicitor of any type, <laughs> trying to get in front of the independent-owned primary care physician that pays his own overhead, it's, it's very, very difficult because they're running so fast. And that's the hard part, right? Is like, how do we get their attention and tell them, look, these are the opportunities that have. To me, I think in order for that to happen, you have to be able to have an arrangement that makes sense for the, the, the physician. I'm a big believer that val the road to value base has to be led by physicians, especially primary care physicians. You know, fee-for-service, if you look at the totem pole, primary care physicians are at the bottom. So what I was told uh, my colleagues Look, you want value base because when you get to value base, guess what? We're on the we're the top. We we end up being the quarterbacks. And we're the ones who actually control the money as it filters down. And so, from that perspective, primary care physician, everyone I talk to is like you. You would want nothing better than to be away from a fee for service model and get into value base. Another thing is typically uh, PE firms, they really uh, return on investments anywhere between 20 to 35%, depending on the PE firm. That's a really hard ask. And so I think to try to get capital investment, because you need capital to grow, right? You need to scale. And that's the other big thing too, is that everybody's looking for scalability and how do you do that? And the only way you can do that is you have to, the physicians have to aggregate by themselves. I'm just going to be honest as I can. It depends on, obviously it depends on location. If you're in a very rural market and you have onesie twosie shop, I think you'll be fine for right now, but eventually, but if you're in a very competitive market near a, a major urban area, the one doc model in a fee for service, you and I both know that, that, you know, you're going to end up being a dinosaur. You're going to be roadkill. So you're going to have to figure out who am I going to attach with? Am I going to be attached to so an ACO that can give me better contracts? And that's what I always tell primary care physicians is that, you know, if you don't want to be commoditized, then you have to belong to a larger entity. And ideally, I would love, I would love for them to join a larger physician-led organization, not an institutional organization. To me, a hospital-based ACO doesn't make a lot of sense. You and I had many discussions on that and the reasons why. And I'll go back again is that what's missing in the market right now is the hardest thing to find is good physician leadership. And if we can try to, what I would love to do is find physicians that are entrepreneurial, that have the energy, uh, that want to, you know, they want to impact the communities that they serve. I think those are the people, what I call anchor physicians. Those are the people that I would find and then I would put resources around them. I think that's a really good way to aggregate lives and, and aggregate great primary care physicians.
Well, David, there's a couple of things that stood out to me in, in your response, and I would agree The on the hospital side, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I think, if you're a primary care physician and really believe in, in having the highest performing and innovative care delivery model possible to go into the arms of, uh, of a health system. And, you know, research is kind of proving that out, too, on, you know, that continued private equity acquisition and hospitals and which includes the physician aggregation is driving up prices and leading to poor outcomes because the PE firms are looking at lower labor costs after an acquisition, they're reducing staffing levels. But you know, if you look at investment in the primary care physician side and in the retaining of independence and you know and in keeping that good physician leadership in place with what you talked about i mean there re- there really is a a pathway to getting higher quality and more equitable care and it's research has shown that if, the more you spend on primary care it makes practices more likely to to meet care quality measures, meet diabetic care goals, ensure screenings for breast cancer, cervical cancer, colorectal cancer, as well as ensure appropriate medication use and a whole other you know litany of things that have really improve care outcomes. And in America, though, I mean, primary care spending, it's about five cents of every healthcare dollar. And investment seems to be a good idea generally. However, you know, to the point that we made earlier, we have to, physicians have to do their due diligence and find the right capital partner. And, you know, you and I had a conversation a couple of days ago and, you know, you said M&A is easy, but it's this integration part that's the nightmare. And a lot of these investors don't understand the local market. You know, they may be trying to replicate success that they've had in Florida and try to, you know, go into a different state, different region and use that as a turnkey way to approach things. So that, you know, you you earlier talked about scalability and it seems to me that you have to have kind of a localized approach to scale. And, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, of course, having the access to the capital uh, having the good physician leadership, but also having that localized control that's only made possible through the physician leadership. So I w- just wanted to ask you, David, as a assuming a primary practice chooses the right partner, and they, you know, how do they go about executing on the integration once the deal is consummated? I mean, how do you build an infrastructure for risk and a shared governance model that does favor the clinical acumen and the leadership of the primary care physician, but also takes in, into account some of the local nuances in the marketplace? There's several things. I, um, As you know, in Texas right now, there's a huge land grab. Uh, so a lot of the big PE firms did really, really well uh, in the MA space in Florida. Uh, so Florida is almost saturated. So it's very difficult to make things meet work over there. So they're all coming to other areas of the country that, you know, a lot of the seniors, they want, they want to retire. So they're coming to places like Arizona, New Mexico, Georgia. Texas is a big one that everyone's coming into. And what they're finding out is that every practice that they're trying to aggregate, I would say at least 80% of the income comes from fee-for-service. And it's probably even higher than that. So the problem is, okay, how do we aggregate all these practices that all of them are in different EMRs? Some of them are even on paper. And then the, most of the local physicians, they know how to do fee-for-service and they have no idea on how to do value. If you think about it, that's a pretty tough nut to crack. And then you have to scale. And so how do you do that? And then a lot of times people throw out terms like vertical integration, interoperability. I'm sure you heard that a million times. I can tell you what that means for a primary care physician. It means more work, right? That's what that means. 
So, you know, if you get somebody who's on paper charts and then and try to change them into an EHR system, that is one of the most painful things in the world. You can ask anybody. It's extremely painful because I don't think anyone would, you know, disagree that paper charts need to go away because we do need to be able to share information and it's extremely ineffective. But from a charting perspective, it's it's a lot faster. Right. You don't have to go from screen to screen to screen and all these other things that you're thinking about. So what I've seen on the all the big PE firms, when they go and aggregate, what they have is a proprietary data warehouse and they dump all the the, the data of, from the practice and dump it into the warehouse. And then they have some a form of population health management system that overlays the data warehouse and and hopefully can integrate with many of the EMRs in the local area. And that's how they get the data. Unfortunately, I think several things are happening in the market. Number one is healthcare is, is all data-driven right now, and I'm sure you know that. So because of that, the physician or the clinician, they're bombarded by more data. So it's very similar to what happened in the banking industry in the Dodd-Frank age, right? All these compliance issues, all these small banks got overwhelmed with all these things that they had to do. And I think that's what I'm seeing in the market right now is, all these clinicians are trying to understand what does it mean to do HEDIS measures? What does it mean to close these gaps? What does it mean that I have to code ACC? What, do, what does it mean that I have to you know, do care management? And so they're overwhelmed. First of all, there's this underlying feeling of inadequacy. They know that they have to alter their behavior, but no one's really taking the time to lead them by the hand and say, you got to do small, you know, capital A, small B, capital C. And so that is a big problem. And then the second thing is they're, they're overwhelmed with the amount of data they have to navigate. So really when it's all said and done, they need help. If you don't give them help, they, there's no way you're gonna get the outcome that you need. So one of the things that everybody's looking for, it's really interesting, you and I talked about this, is that VC firms are looking uh, for opportunities to actually replace the provider. Right. We talked about that. And I've talked to a couple of them. They're thinking at some point that you go to CVS and there's a robot there, an AI, some kind of AI there. And then it scans the person and the patient talks about their complaint and it does some algorithm. And it's, oh, by the way, because based on your past medical history and your complaint today, so forth and so on, I think you have acute pharyngitis. And then they look in the bottom and all of a sudden it drops out in a pack of antibiotics. I don't think that's going to happen in a very near future. I think that's, you know, everyone's looking for automation and how to leverage AI. Of all the industries of anything, I don't think there's more per, anything more personal than healthcare. To me, healthcare is extremely personal. What it means for uh, patient A is can mean something totally different from patient B. And so in that sense, to automate healthcare, I think it's going to be very difficult because it is so personal. Having said that, if there's a way that you can create standardization and how the back office flows from referrals to insurance verification, all the administrative burdens that basically bogs down medical practices, if there's a way that you can create standardization, I think that would be extremely helpful. Because that's what really, if you ask any uh, clinician, what drives them crazy is that they don't want to spend time doing administrative stuff. They don't want to spend time trying to find where to send Mrs. So-and-so to specialist because she's on this HMO plan. They don't want to spend time 
documenting if they don't have to or charting. And that's one of the things that leads to clinician burnout. You know, we call it moral injury now, but that's is that they're bogged down with all this data and then they have to navigate all this data you know, and they don't know how to do it. A lot of the physicians are just totally overwhelmed. So really when it's said and done, I can tell you if we don't solve that problem, what you're gonna see is that clinicians are gonna retire much earlier and just they're just gonna put their hands up and join some hospital system and they'll just check in and check out and not really, unfortunately, really give a damn. And I think that's what we're seeing in the market right now. Well, David, uh, there's something I wanted to go a little bit deeper on. You made the comment that nothing is more personal than healthcare. And, you know, and there's clearly this intersection now that we're seeing with value-based care delivery and, and consumerism. And when you founded PAC Medical Group, I mean, you realized that a primary care-driven patient-centric model is going to be core to the successful uh, business strategy of of the group, and you had this vision for delivering primary care to seniors in a coordinated way that's augmented with accurate data and teams of support professionals, where you could make a significant impact on clinical quality and cost. And over the years, these types of high touch primary care models have have been shown to increase access to care and reduce admissions to the hospital, improve uh, health outcomes. However, what has always differentiated your patient-centered primary care model is just how consumer-focused it is. I mean, I've seen it firsthand from the time we spent working together. When we collaborated in the past, I just couldn't get over, you know, how patient-centered your medical practice was. And to this day, you know, every anytime I watch that tearful patient testimonial that's on your YouTube channel, it moves me, you know, every time. I mean, there's a patient in that video that breaks down crying when she talks about how cared for she is by you and how much she appreciates being able to reach you by phone and ultimately how your, your love for medicine manifests itself within the patient-physician relationship that she has with you. And so I wanted to ask you, David, how can we as a healthcare industry make personalized care and customer service the primary currency of value-based care delivery? I mean, what are the lessons that you've learned about the importance of consumerism in healthcare over the years? And how can primary care models like yours scale a patient-centered culture to have a more outsized impact in improving population health outcomes, especially in the underserved communities. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think um, number one thing it has to, uh, is you have to have the right vision. And so for me, I think one of the biggest mistakes uh, physicians make, and I don't mean this in the wrong way, but they think that they are the practice and they are the be-all, end-all of, of that practice and nothing can be further from the truth. If you look at the data, it's extremely clear that the physician or the clinician spends anywhere between 20% or less than 20% of, of the patient's time. 80%, at least 80% or more of the time, they're interacting with your support staff. So they're calling about changing their appointment or verifying their appointment. They're, they're calling about the medication, uh, if it was refilled or, what, uh, or medication refill. They're calling about the referrals that they need to get to be seen. They're, they're talking about, so they're, they're in touch with your support staff. And if you don't build that infrastructure first, then guess what? Uh, you, you're going to fail. If you look at healthcare, healthcare is the only industry that I know that really doesn't have a CRM program, right? Think about it. We don't. Do, do you ever see, when's the last time you saw a CRM uh, software in a primary care office or any specialist office? 
we have to understand that we are in a service-driven industry. We provide a service. And, and the people who pay our bills are the patients. And we call them patients, but at the end of the day, they're the customers that pay for our bills. They're the ones that pay for our lights, that pays my salary, that pays our team member's salary, the computers, the phone systems, and, and those kinds of things. So in my mind, I think there has to be this change, this paradigm shift that basically says, look, the customers at the, at the forefront, they're the most important resource in our organization. And then we have to build the infrastructure for doing that. And from doing this for many, many years, I can tell you that patients want three main things. And if you do these three things, then patients are most of the time are happy. Number one thing is communication, right? It's so frustrating to try to communicate and navigate just trying to get a hold of the clinician. It's almost an impossible task. And that's one of the issues that I see when you see the corporate takeover of healthcare is like, call any of these big entities you call, you get this phone tree or, I mean, or automated stuff. And it's almost impossible to uh, get that communication. So communication is an, a paramount aspect that you need to have. So when you're building this, you, got, you have to make sure that your patients have access to you. And so communication is paramount. Second thing they want is they want coordination. So meaning that if they need, they need a referral to go see the cardiologist, they want to make sure that your team can coordinate with their cardiologist's office. So they're getting the service that they, that they need. That's really, really important for them to do that, right? And so then by far the most important thing is they want access. So when they're sick, they want access. Not necessarily that they have to see you, for example, but they need access. It all depends on you know, what the situation is. So those are the three hallmarks that I think, especially primary care offices, you have to build that. You have to build access, communication, and coordination. Those are the three hallmarks that I've seen. And then out of that, you have to empower your team to say, look, our, what's our number one goal? Our number one goal is to take care of our customer, our patient. Our patient is the one who pays your bills. I signed the check, but at the end of the day, only reason I can sign your paycheck is because Mrs. So-and-so comes to our office every single day. So if you don't instill that, that customer service from the ground up, you're never going to get that. So that's the most important thing. What I did was that I, I made sure that every single team member fully understands the impact of the patients, that every single time they, they, they basically came into the office, that you better greet them with a smile because they're the ones ultimately that are paying your paycheck. And you have to make that connection very, very clear. Another really important thing I think is important as we're getting into this data is that I don't want our clinicians looking at every patient as a number. And that, that becomes a problem. And so what we do is every single week, we look at all our uh, reviews on Facebook and Google and a couple of the other platforms we have. And we tie that back to the clinicians. And so every single time that you have to, you have to personalize healthcare again. That's one of the biggest issues that I see is a pitfall what's happening with this massive consolidation of corporate takeover healthcare and data driven is that we basically depersonalize healthcare. And for me, I think that's really a bad model. It's really interesting. If you look at the data, if you really want to revolutionize healthcare and, and, and drive better outcomes, it's the Marcus Welby model that really is the ideal model, right? It's the doctor that's available to make house call and actually see the patient when that's needed. And so that we all talk about 
How do we deliver the right care to the right patient at the right time? That's the key. And so the only way you can do that is that you have to understand your patient population. And so the data is very clear. Like if you're looking at inner city, I actually have a, a slide when I do a lecture of an Aborigine in a third world country living in their hut and a, a person who's a wheelchair bound in an inner city in their bed and they can't get out of bed. And I put both of them up and I said, you know what? Tell me the difference in their access to healthcare. There is no difference, right? The person in, in downtown Chicago or Detroit or New York who has really no um, help, they don't have family, they're in the lower uh, socioeconomic scale, uh, they can't get transportation and they're virtually bed bound. How is that person going to get access to healthcare? It's, it, it's exactly the same as that person in Africa or, uh, you know, in a third world country. It's no different. And so I really think if we want to solve this problem, we have to take care of that first is that we need to be able to give everyone access and we need to be able to have a robust communication platform so they can, they can communicate freely. And then number three is that we have to help them coordinate this God awful, sophisticated healthcare system that we're dealing with right now. Well, David, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, you, th you think about the access, the communication, the coordination, right place, right model, right time. There's a vision and a strategy behind it. We've talked about the, the leveraging capital, having the right business model, having the culture. But there's also another important element, and that's technology. You know, that's the glue that kind of ties it all together in terms of having the data and the analytics to monitor performance. And what, what I love about your group is how not only is it leveraging, you know, leveraging that power of caring relationships and driving outcomes, but you're also looking at leveraging technology and having evidence-based medicine to deliver a full comp, a, a full complement of high-quality primary and preventative care services to the patients that you serve. You know, you have a older and a higher risk population, you know, with your senior based practice and and you're offering a, a range of services that are designed uh, to meet those individual patient needs across the con continuum of care. I mean, you're offering care coordination, multi-point telehealth that can include family members and other specialties. Uh, you're doing house calls you're, for those residing in assisted living facilities and all these service delivery models incorporate remote patient monitoring data to provide a comprehensive view of the patient status and care planning needs and the types of devices that I know that are used in your RPM program include home monitors for blood sugar, blood pressure, pulse ox, weight, temperature, and amongst others. And these devices are paid for by Medicare under the traditional or the MA plans, and they connect wirelessly via Bluetooth to a patient's cell phone and eliminates the need for them to even have internet access. And your patients are trained on how to record and submit data, that data being transmitted and pooled within your clinical and administrative information system within your data warehouse, I, I know is really allowing you to look at historical trends and and run that data through risk stratification algorithms and, and create care models that's going to be more specific uh, to what their needs are and, uh, and really being able to improve outcomes. So I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, how does your practice culture build the foundation in your RPM program? So you can enable the delivery of patient-centered care that's ag agnostic to location. And how does PMG use the data to improve care outcomes and empower the interdisciplinary team and its quarterbacking positions? 
That's one of my other passions too. Um, I think there's three fallacies that we need to get over almost immediately. I, I use that term a lot, paradigm shift, and we talk about the age of consumerism. Look, I will tell you, it's mind boggling to me, Eric, that this day and age that like FedEx, for example, or Amazon, they can track billions of, of packages per day and tell you exactly where your package is. Well, your package is an airplane flying over uh, Memphis right now, right? And then we still have patients being lost in hospitals. How is that even possible? I mean, it's just mind boggling to me. So really when it's all said and done, I think healthcare, we need, we need to giddy up and, and get with the program. So let me answer your question in multiple phases. Number one is one big fallacy is that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's an absolute lie. Before COVID at our, our, at our clinic education, we have an educational room in our clinics and we used to give computer classes. And it was full every week. And it, it was led by a very dynamic person who cracked jokes and made it entertaining, right? And so we would teach them how to log on to their patient portal. We would teach them how to use their smart tablet. We would teach them how to use their smartphone to log in, to look at their portal. We'd also teach them like social media if they want to connect with their grandchildren on whatever, um, Facebook, so forth and so on. They love that. So the answer is, that's not true. The older population... They're very astute and they, they really can easily adapt to a digital culture. It's just that they just, they just need some help and they adapt very, very well. So that's a problem. Now that's fallacy number one. Number two, another fallacy is good healthcare can only be, uh, be delivered the confines of four walls. And that's absolutely not true. I can, I can tell you for a fact, that's absolutely not true. I just saw a really amazing demo we're, and we're gonna, we're actually doing a pilot, this amazing software. It's a patient engagement uh, platform software that basically, basically integrate with any Bluetooth uh, enabled device. So not only we're talking like weight scale, continuous glucose monitoring system of, uh, you know, vitals, blood pressure, pulse ox, but anything like that wearable technology that you have like Fitbit or Apple watch, it integrates with it and it can send data. So uh, one of the demos they show, which was really powerful, was that they showed a, a diabetic patient who's got continuous glucose monitoring system. And with Fitbit, they showed that the days that they actually put at least 10,000 steps in their Fitbit, the sugar was definitely better. And you can actually show that and actually engage with the patient in real time. How powerful is that, right? And so... Really, I think from a, from a technological perspective, it's only as good as how well you deploy it, right? That's what it comes down to. And so sometimes in my mind, I, I think in systems, and if you look at you know, clinics or healthcare in our clinics, the way I look at it is four different sections. Number one is the software, then the workflow around that software, and then the process of the SOPs around that workflow, and then the human capital behind it. And so... You have to get all four components of those correct and for you to do the right care navigation. I think where we're investing, where we're investing heavily in PAC Medical Group is our asset light division. You have to deliver healthcare where it's needed. If the patient can't come to you, at the end of the day, you have to be able to go to them. And that means that you, you have to have mobile units. And so we have mobile physical therapy, mobile imaging, and mobile lab now. And so to me, it's a no brainer uh, that you should be able to do that. In order for you to be a, a complete uh, care delivery model, you have to be able to have all those aspects of, of asset light, 
Uh, you have to have uh, leverage technology to do RPM, you know, telehealth, all those things come into play and it's, it's readily available right now. I think the biggest problem is honestly, is that people don't know how to incorporate it into their workflow. As you know, there's a huge issue with human capital right now. And if you go to any office and say, hey, by the way, you know, I have this amazing uh, remote patient monitoring or I have this uh, really neat mousetrap. A lot of the offices are like, wait a minute, look, I can't even find somebody for my front office to answer the phone. And so you want me to have another try to find another person that can uh, create another workflow, another processes. And so. I think that's one of the big bottlenecks right now or the barrier that we're going to have to come over right now. Does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely does, David. And, you know, I'm just uh, so impressed by, again, the the practice that you've built and the track record of success and building these patient-centered care models. And I wanted to extrapolate a little further and take it outside of the, the practice setting and get more into what you're building at the risk-bearing entity level I mean, I mentioned at the top of the show that you had this uh, uh, risk-bearing entity called Zenith Independent Physician Network, and this is an RBE with independent primary care physicians. It has 91 practices and you know 350 total clinicians. I mean, you're managing populations and dozens of cities across Texas, and Zenith has a contract with the Medicare Church Savings Program and has several MA contracts with payers such as Devoted, WellCare, Humana, United, Amerigroup, Blue Cross, Cigna. I'd love to learn more about your approach to the risk-bearing entity and the ACO that you're building. I mean, there's so many things that I know our listeners would want to know about. How do you establish a shared governance and oversee programs and quality improvement and medical management, the financial alignment of incentives and the physician comp model? You know, having, you know, managing and configuring physician pods across such a large swath of territory in Texas. I mean, I don't expect you to go into all that, but I I did want you to, I wanted to ask you if you could just describe the vision for Zenith and provide some context for how you've been able to operationalize it. And then also, what are you looking for in primary care physicians uh, when you're uh, building the, the, the network out and what have the results been so far, you know, with RB? So, I, yeah, I appreciate it. We're really extremely proud. Of the, the funniest thing is we launched Zenith, our ACO, in January of 2020. And, the, you know, and there was some, some little thing called COVID-19 hit on uh, January of 2020. So we're extremely proud of our team to be able to build that in one of the, the most difficult situations. So thank you for stating that. I think it's really important, and I'll state it again. You're going to hear me over and over again. One of the things that really bothers me about a lot of these clinicians in these risk-bearing entities or these ACOs. And the first question I ask them is, tell me what they share with you. What data do they share with you? And I'm sure you probably heard the same thing. It's amazing to me how little that they get engaged from the ACO leadership. And then the number, the biggest one that concerns me is a lack of financial transparency. Because when you do a risk-bearing entity, you get money for uh, care coordination fees and all these other things. And so I ask them like, what, how do you know? Well, first of all, did you get any financial benefit from it? And if they say yes, and, and, and some of them say, yeah, we get this check randomly. And we have no idea what it's for. Or some of them say, no, we never got anything. So number one thing I think needs to happen for any of these risk-bearing entities or ACOs or whatever you want to call them is that you have to be transparent. 
you have to be you have to have total financial transparency on how the money comes in and how it's distributed that's really important number two i think that's really important is that you all these primary care clinicians that you were lucky enough to have them join you they need support they need to be communicated with they they need to be contact points and one of the big things that we try to push is that they at, at the very least they're contacted every month so you know dr so-and-so how are you doing do you have any questions it can be a, a so we have this uh whatsapp group chat room that we do then of course we have email we have texting so i think it's really important to at least every month have some point of communication then of course every quarter we have all clinician meeting it's really important i lead by we used to use zoom but now we have a different platform a video chatting platform that we use so that's really important too so the three hallmarks I think is really important that to uh, to have a successful risk bearing entity is that obviously you have to you have to really uh, have the right infrastructure and so you have to be able to obtain good contracts because at the end of the day if you don't have good contracts that create benefits for the the uh, clinicians it's not going to last period end of story number two is that you have to have financial transparency so report cards. And number three, you have to have uh, report cards on how the practice is doing. Actually give them data and educate. You have to be able to educate the uh, practices that are in your that are in your risk-bearing entity because it's like anything else. If you don't if you don't engage with them and you don't give them education, how do you expect them to improve? It makes no sense. And so though, to me, that is the most important thing. And we try really hard to do that. Another thing that I really try to do is find physician leaders in different geographical areas that I, I call anchor physicians. I use that term a lot that I can decipher information. And if they have any questions, they can contact me directly. And then I try to be a support and a guide for them or a mentor for them. And so that's what you have to do is you have to create this ripple effect. You have, it takes a village. That's what it comes down to, Eric. It takes a village and you create leaders in these geographical areas to lead these pods and then hopefully they can keep you know growing that way and that's the only way that i see that uh, you can make it work if you don't have financial transparency it's that relationship is not going to work at some point they're going to leave well david it, it takes a village and the right positions and you also have to have that extended team you talked earlier about the importance of uh, uh workflow and uh automation and making sure that doctors aren't spending their time doing uh mindless tasks and what i wanted to uh, ask you about is uh the work that you're doing through your uh other company elios and you know this is a company that realizes that, you know, there's all these challenges in, in primary care practices, finding reliable and trained and efficient staffing, and you can't rely entirely on locally sourced talent. So as an entrepreneur, you decided, you know, hey, I'm going to find, I'm going to start this company that provides remote staffing solutions to practices that supports their live in-room charting, medical transcription, virtual assistance with phone tasks such as general calls, referrals, prior offs, insurance verifications, appointment confirmations. And this company, Elio Staffing, it provides clinical integration between offices and neutralizes uh, the delays that are caused by transitions in the purchasing of independent practices. It also allows for easier deployment of CCM, RPM, and other 
value-based home care strategies. And you told me about this uh, human AI strategy that you deployed through Elios uh, a couple of months ago and how much happier it was making your clinicians and patients. And, you know, it's also had, as I understand, some impact on your uh, risk adjustment score and your medical loss ratio. So, you know, David, uh, you know, can you share with our listeners the vision for this company and how it improved uh, value-based care performance in your practice? Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, out of all the companies I founded, this is the one I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm the most excited about because I really do think that that once it's fully operational to the way I want it, I, I, I think it really will be a, have a dramatic in, uh, positive impact in healthcare. And so what was happening to me, because I see patients every single day and I was getting absolutely that whole syndrome that everyone has is just like, I was tired. I'm tired of charting until nine o'clock at night. I was tired of charting on weekends. I was tired every single time I logged into the EHR system, you know, my in bucket was full of stuff from tasks and labs and everything else. And so I was getting really burnt out and, and I started looking for different options in 2019. I'm like, I can't continue this, especially as I want to scale my business. And so I, I started looking for different options. And so I started looking for technology. So we tried Dragon and I'm sure a lot of practices have tried Dragon and it, it just didn't work out for me. And so I was trying to find any way that I can uh, do automation automate some of the administrative burden. And what I found was uh, I had a really good friend that has great connections in, in Central America. He's, he runs multiple businesses down there. He was in the power grid, uh, generates like 12% of the power grid in several of the Latin American countries. He's uh, um, really big in commercial real estate in, and he's also in media and you name it. He's, he's very well connected. And so I told him one day, I said, look, we have this huge problem in U.S. healthcare, and I really want your help to help me solve it. And so we sat down and developed a strategy. So it first started out as some human capital that can come in uh, you know, virtually to help out some of the stuff. And then it quickly evolved into that I want to create a healthcare solution. And then how do you do that? What that means is, well, again, it goes back to the same thing. It's like software, workflow, process, and then you wrap human capital around it to create optimization. And so we were able to leverage a lot of the relationships that my friend had with the universities, uh, the bilingual universities, and they all speak perfect Spanish and they all speak excellent English and they're all phenomenal talent down there. A lot of them are lawyers, uh, uh, engineers, doctors, dentists, pharmacists, nurses, those kinds of things. And so work with a university to uh, get them trained in the, the basic platform. So, so, so the four EHR systems are Athena, ECW, Epic, and Cerner. So they learn EHR system, how to navigate it. So they become subject matter experts. And then we have a population health management software that we're, we're actually are uh, developing and working with that basically extracts data in a value-based operation. So to understand how to navigate the data and how to uh, make sure that that data gets into the right places. And then they go through the whole workflow of, you know, we have a whole team on our side that teaches them the workflow of how value-based works. So they understand what risk adjustment factor is and, and how to, they don't do the risk adjustment factor, but they know how to look for they know all the portals to look for, like in pharmacy, radiology, from uh, consult notes. So, so key terms that they look for. 
And so it's all about really understanding what they're looking for, how to navigate the software, and then plug them into a workflow that, that makes sense for any given practice. And the other, so the four uh, core competencies they get is number one is uh, uh, medical terminology, medical Spanish and uh, English medical translation. They get a CMS certification, uh, compliance certification, and then they also get, of course, HIPAA certification through this program. And then once they're out of there, uh, if they want to go to the advanced course, and then they can navigate everything from referral management to insurance verification. So they handle all the back office functions. And then if they want to graduate to uh, function as a almost a virtual human AI, uh, so every one of the clinicians at PAC Medical Group has a what we call a VHA, a virtual healthcare associate. And what that means is that virtual healthcare associate has uh, graduated through the program. And so they know how to basically prep the charts. And so they know, look for HEDIS measures, care gaps. They understand all the value base. And then they have it teed up for me when I go in there. They prep all the charts a week before. So I don't have to look for anything. So let's say our test patient, Mrs. H, let's say I, I saw her week and, and let's say she, she had abdominal pain. She had to get an ultrasound of her abdomen. She had labs done. All those things are already in the chart when I see Mrs. H again. And then that uh, VHA stays with me and does a total scribe, orders all the orders that I want. If I have to send a referral, they know exactly how to send a referral. They understand if it's an HMO, they understand which network they have to be under. So they function as a human AI uh, for our clinic. And then they basically have, it's almost like a, a virtual workforce that we have a hybrid system, virtual workforce that works with our on the ground team. And we created specific workflows for the value-based model. And it has been an unbelievable accomplishment on our part because it's done multiple things. Number one is that the clinician stress index or clinician burnout, before we started this program, we did a survey with very specific questions about clinician burnout stress index, and it was running around eight. And now it's all down to a one. And then the other thing that it has is it dramatically helped with our, our metrics and our quality scores because they're doing all the data mining for us. And so we have a team that data mines. They send that data mine information to the, uh, the data navigation team. And then the data navigation team sends that to all the virtual VHAs. And so basically we have this whole, like, like you said, created almost like a human AI kind of transformation to our practice. Well, David, you've had some outstanding results, and I really appreciate the comments you made also on the impact that it's had on physician burnout. And, you know, that's a concern right now. I think that's top of mind for uh, many healthcare leaders out there. I mean, we're we're seeing a phenomenal amount of just stressed out physicians. I mean, you used the term moral injury earlier, and the system right now, you know, it has to begin to value relationships over transactions and population health over having inequitable disparities and poor outcomes and high costs. And it has to value holism over fragmentation. And that's really the promise of value-based care and everything that you've done in your career, uh, both as, as, a, as a physician and on, entrepreneur is really around that 
consumer-centric, patient-first model uh, to really innovate and, and create a, a way that not only patients thrive, but the providers can thrive as well. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I was just wondering if you could provide some parting thoughts on the way that we as a country can restore the primacy of primary care so we could really unleash the potential of it to improve patient outcomes and PCP morale? And how do we get them from being at the bottom of the totem pole? I mean, we we clearly have to fix this problem in American healthcare. Boy, that's a big question. I think for me, it comes down to a, a very specific things. Number one is if, if the physician or the clinician doesn't enjoy seeing patients, we create a um, an environment where they look at patients as work then that's a problem, right? And that's what ultimately, that's what we've done, unfortunately, is that we've depersonalized healthcare. So instead of Mrs. H, a a grandmother of three who loves to see her granddaughter play soccer, they see Mrs. H's HEDA score, she doesn't have a mammogram and a DEXA, and who's got a RAF score of 0.7. What we did is we depersonalized the, the human interaction, which is really unfortunate. And one of the reasons why I named our company Elios is, is the Greek goddess of compassion. And I think we need to bring that back. We need to bring compassion and empathy back into healthcare. And the only way to do that is that we need to empower the, 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 the people on the ground in the trenches that are dealing with patients in and out every single day. We have to give them the necessary resources and the tools so they can be successful. And right now, I can tell you, I deal with primary care practices all the time through our Zenith and they're all struggling because they're struggling for a multitude of reasons. Number one is that they have all this data that they have to manage and navigate. And then, you know, they have extreme turnover right now, right? Extreme turnover. And they can't even keep their staff for front office or MAs or whatever. So there, there's that a tremendous amount of pressure. And then here's a really interesting thought. And I'm sure you've probably seen this before. I was at a a physician conference. And one of the questions asked was, how many of you out there, and it was a physician conference in my CME, how many of you out there feel like you're giving every patient the, the best care you can give uh, percentage-wise, right? And that's where it hit me that the majority of the physicians in that classroom, when was asked that question, you can tell that the system doesn't allow them to do that. And that's where the moral injury comes from, right? Is that they feel like they're neglecting their duty to the patient uh, because they're overwhelmed with all this administrative duty. So what do you do? So you don't want that pain. So you compartmentalize. That's what ends up happening. You compartmentalize and, and you basically disengage. And that's what we're seeing across the country is that the clinicians are disengaged. They want to focus on more pleasantries, like, you know, focus on their family. So they, they come into work and they think of it like a banker. It's just a job. I just clock in see my number of patients, you know, check, check, check and do my thing. And, uh, you know, unfortunately that will only lead you somewhere because you're not invested and you, you don't enjoy your practice anymore. So when it's all said and done, the way we can heal healthcare is it, we have to, we have to get to the grassroots, you know, it's and I hate to tell people, we talk about technology and all these fancy, we want this fancy glass mirrors and all these things that we want, right? The new fancy toy, but that's not the answer, Eric. The Eric is we we have to be able to get to the blocking and tackling. We need to block better and we need to tackle better. The sound fundamentals. And that's 
basically empowering the clinicians in the trenches, give them the necessary resources so they can actually focus on the patients. And they can actually have a conversation with the patient, get to know the patient, and really look at the patient as, as a human being rather than a number. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to change healthcare in the right way is it's got to be a grassroots movement. Well, David, I couldn't agree more. We are in a race to make value-based care work in this country, and it's going to require a grassroots movement. It's been decades in the making, but we have to move faster. I mean, we're at a glacial pace right now, but it's through leaders like you that are uh, doing the work, transforming the lives of uh, the patients that you serve, improving the health and communities, and ultimately telling the story. That's where I think the tipping point is going to uh, happen Dr. Pack, I, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your insights for our listeners this week. And it's been a pleasure uh, having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. And I, I really appreciate you doing these things because we need people like you to get the word out and giving people educational opportunities. And, and I, I can't thank you for all the work that you're doing in the value-based space. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And it, it's a labor of love. And I know it's the same for you.